You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader, hosting this week. And here with me are Will Doran and Andy Spay of the NNO. And a little bit later, we'll hear from Brian Murphy, our DC correspondent, uh, to talk about what's been a very interesting week in uh, national politics with uh, the big Alabama election, um, tax reform and tax cuts and uh, tax bill looming, and uh, a uh, North Carolina playing a big role in a Trump nominee uh, withdrawing. Uh, but uh, here in the uh, NNO studios, we'll talk about new Democrats running, new Democratic candidates for uh, legislative seats, a uh, sort of dramatic walkout uh, at a meeting dealing with uh, judicial maps, and uh, a letter uh, that uh, the leaders of the legislature have sent to uh, the governor and the attorney general. Um, asking them to do everything they can to restart the death penalty. Uh, and we'll, uh, we'll uh, also talk about the big news on the local level this week involving uh, a former Wake County Register of Deeds who's been uh, charged with embezzlement and what that means for state politics. Uh, Will, let's start with the Democrats who are running. Uh, there's nine of them, and uh, six are women. And uh, Democrats uh, also touted the fact that three are people of color, two are LGBT. Um, so why do they roll all these out at, at one time, and, and what does it all mean? Sure. Well, I'm just to clarify, there's obviously more than nine Democrats running uh, for the legislature next year. I think there's several dozen, maybe 60 or 70 so far, who have you know, said that they intend to file once that's open. But, uh, yeah, on Monday they had uh, nine candidates all file at once, kind of do a big high-profile uh, rollout of these candidates. Um, and yeah, six of the nine were women and, um, uh, all of them had, uh, you know, pretty, pretty high qualifications, a lot of lawyers, some licensed social workers, um, you know, people who had, you know, kind of clearly been in communities. So, uh, the Democrats say that this is a sign that, you know, they're getting serious about, you know, rolling out candidates for 2018. They think, uh, you know, that Virginia has shown uh, that there's kind of a Democratic wave happening right now. Obviously, you had the the Doug Jones-Roy Moore race down in Alabama, where a Democrat won in Alabama for the first time in decades. Um, and so Democrats are feeling pretty hopeful, and they're really pinning a lot of their hopes on women. Um, obviously, in the news lately, we've all heard, you know, tons of stories about sexual harassment, and everyone has said, well, what's one way to you know, not have as much harassment going on, elect more women to positions of power. Um, talk to some Democratic leaders. They said that that's part of it, but really it stems all the way back to uh, when Trump won the presidency. They said basically as soon as he won, uh, local Democratic offices started getting phone calls from all of these women saying that they wanted to run for office. Uh, you know, a lot of them responding to uh, Trump's, uh, you know, treatment of women in the past. Um we're seeing uh, Democrats win in some places you wouldn't expect um, in other states. So 
are they trying for districts they wouldn't normally run anybody in here? Are these districts that uh, are pretty solidly Republican? Well, yeah, the nine that they announced were all held by Republican incumbents. Um, and it's hard to say whether or not the districts are solidly Republican because we still don't know what maps we're going to use in 2018. Uh, there's, you know, the current maps that everyone was elected in right now that have been ruled unconstitutional. There's the new maps uh, to replace those that the General Assembly passed. But the courts didn't like those. They felt they didn't go far enough, possibly, to uh, to correct some of the uh, the issues why they were ruled unconstitutional in the first place. Um, although that's not totally settled yet. And then in the meantime, we've got a third set of maps that was drawn by an independent uh, professor from out in California. So it's a little too soon to say, but you know, definitely worth noting that you know, yeah, these are all held by Republican incumbents. They probably will still lean Republican, no matter what maps we end up using next year in the elections. Um, but uh, <laughs> one thing uh, before people get uh, too many uh, fuzzy feminist feelings uh, with all these women running is that the uh, Re- Republicans pointed out most of the Republican women who have these new challengers, or I, I should say, most of these Republican incumbents are women. Uh, so, you know, the, the General Assembly has very few women in it. I think it's 20, 25 percent women. Um, and so, you know, even if all six of these Democratic women win, there might not be that much change in the n- number of women legislators we've got since a lot of them are running against Republican women. And I don't know if that says, you know, that, uh, you know, Democrats think that, you know, those are more vulnerable or just, you know, they happen to be newer, might not have as much name recognition, or if it's just where the candidates happen to live. But uh, we'll see about that. We do have at least a a few women uh, already declared to run against Republican, male Republican incumbents. Um, You've been writing about, and others have been writing about, uh, a Wake County uh, race where there's a couple of Democrats, including a woman who's running against uh, Nelson Dollar, and uh, I think some even even Phil Berger, Senator Senate leader Phil Berger, um, has a challenger this year. Yeah, right? yeah. So. There's a UNC Greensboro professor um, who who told me she's a, used to be a Republican, uh, but switched to the Democratic Party uh, either earlier this year or in late 2016, basically as a reaction to Trump, and is now running against Berger as a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I mean. We'll see about that. I, I would imagine Phil Berger is going to be able to raise as much money as he pleases in uh, in any race that he's in, um, and obviously very popular among uh, constituents. So she's definitely got an uphill battle. Um, probably a lot of people will have an uphill battle. We have a very solidly Republican legislature here, um, uh, and you know Democrats don't necessarily say that they're going to you know win majorities in either the House or the Senate next year. Um, but I think they're really uh, hopeful, uh, and you know their target is to basically break the supermajority that the Republicans hold in either the Senate or the House or both. And obviously, if they did that, it would help uh, Roy Cooper uh, be able to actually veto things because he's he did what eleven or twelve vetoes this year. Our, our listeners will have to correct me if I'm wrong on that, but. I think basically every single one of them got overturned. There might have been one or two that didn't. Um, there's there's a couple but, that are still sitting around, and, yeah. and one that they sort of got around uh, rather than directly overturning. But yeah, generally they've but, all uh, been. Uh, yeah, for all intents and purposes, Cooper really doesn't have the power of the veto. He can, but you know, it's in name only. 
So speaking of Cooper and Berger, um, Andy, uh, Phil Berger uh, fired off a couple of statements at Roy Cooper this week and late last week over the death penalty. Um, this comes out of the prison attacks in Pasquotank County where uh, uh, several prison guards and other prison employees were killed um, by inmates trying to escape. And uh, Berger uh, and, and I believe uh, um, Tim Moore, Speaker Tim Moore as well, um, want them to get the death penalty, and prosecutors are pursuing the death penalty against those uh, those inmates. But uh, we haven't executed anyone in North Carolina in quite some time. Um, so uh, before you get into what uh, Berger's accusing, so what, where does the death penalty stand right now in North Carolina? Uh, well, there is sort of a de facto moratorium on the on executions in North Carolina as well as some other states. Um, that dates back to tw- 2006, and uh, that was uh, alluded to by Berger in his statement. Um, mostly, it, it, there are a couple uh, of issues at hand. One is there's a lawsuit involving physicians. Physicians aren't ethically uh, it, ethically. What, what's the best way to phrase this? I'm not a doctor, but they do not feel comfortable ethically, or they're not allowed to. Uh, execute people, to kill people. It's it's, it's the Hippocratic Oath, right? You exactly. Know That's what I was trying to think of. Um, and so uh, there was a law some time ago that required physicians to be at executions. And when they challenged that, because they don't want to be a part of it, uh, that sort of muddied things and um, uh, stalled executions in North Carolina. Meanwhile, um, there was something passed a few years ago called the Racial Justice Act, um, which, and I wasn't a state government reporter at the time, uh, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, allowed people to challenge, allowed uh, people, inmates to challenge their uh, convictions or their sentences if they thought that race played a role in some way. Um, and they could use statistics from uh, uh, racial statistics on the death penalty to, to try to do that, I believe. Right. So. Yeah, and there's a lot of evidence that you know black people are sentenced to death far more than white people are for the exact same crime, same circumstances. Right. And so that was repealed um, by Republicans. Ooh, I can't remember which year. But that's still hung up in court. Some inmates suing uh, for their right uh, to be heard about this. Um, so there are a few things slowing down the process. Okay. Um, and so, that, that's where uh, we are. So th- this, what was, the, uh, uh, what was the accusation by uh, Phil Berger against... Um, both Cooper and actually should say uh, Attorney General Josh Stein as well. Um, Why do they say that uh, they're getting in the way of restarting the death penalty? It was a joint statement by uh, Berger, probably the most prominent Republican in in state politics, and uh, Tim Moore, the House Speaker. Um, And they said uh, that they accused Governor Cooper, who was the Attorney General for a while, and uh, Josh Stein, the current Attorney General, both Democrats, of being opposed to the death penalty and uh, if I remember the quote correctly, doing everything, pulling out every trick in the book to try to delay executions. Um, you know, at first glance, you might think, oh, they're, they're, they might be right. You know, a couple of liberals, uh, you know, in the governor's mansion and in the attorney general's office, maybe they are. Well, PolitiFact, as, as PolitiFact does, looked into the issue and... Um, we could not find any evidence, uh, for one, that Cooper or Stein opposed the death penalty. In fact, while Cooper was attorney general, uh, 27 people were put to death 
uh, and and some cases he he pursued the death penalty. Uh, he's on the record staying. He supports the death penalty. Now Stein hasn't been there long enough to, and obviously there haven't been ex- any executions come uh, his way. Um, but he's on the record saying that he also supports the death penalty. Um, so that part of it is uh, patently false. Like there's there's no evidence to support the claim that they are. Uh, death penalty opponents. We looked into whether or not the Attorney General and Governor have any sort of influence over um, this moratorium on executions. And from what we were told by um, advocates and uh, lawyers, they really don't. There's really nothing they can do. This is uh, this is up to judges. This is up to the courts. This is not up to um, the governor or the attorney general, and they're not fighting. Uh, Neither Stein nor Cooper is fighting to end the cases or delay uh, executions. On on the contrary, with Cooper, when he was there, he fought to move forward with them. So we haven't ruled yet, but uh, I'm not sure what the motivations are for uh, that uh, release last week or this week, but um, that they're certainly not based in fact. Okay. All right. And uh, uh, Will, you wrote about this week a uh, walkout by Democrats at a legislative meeting. So this is kind of uh, uh, something we don't see every day. Um, why did Democrats walk out of this um, committee meeting on uh, judicial uh, maps, basically? Yeah, I was preparing for, uh, you know, no offense to anyone, but a very boring meeting. Uh, mm-hmm. We were talking about, you know, the history of judicial selection and, you know, some, uh, you know, civics and, you know, law school lessons and, you know, talking about uh, the plans to, uh, you know, tweak some of the maps for how judges and district attorneys are elected. Um, you know, seeing what was going to happen, well... At the meeting, there were supposed to be basically two, not witnesses, but presenters. Um, And one was a Republican. He's a law professor from Elon, uh, Scott Gaylord. He's represented the General Assembly in some cases before. Um, And uh, he was supposed to give one presentation. And then also Governor Cooper's office was supposed to be able to send someone for a second presentation. Um, Cooper sent uh, retired Judge Don Stevens, who until last month was the uh, basically the top trial court judge here in Wake County. He, uh, his official title was, I think, the senior chief resident superior court judge. Um, he'd been on the bench for like 30 years. Um, and at the very start of the meeting, uh, Senator Dan Bishop, a Republican from Charlotte who is in charge of this committee, announces that he is not going to let Stephen speak. Um, the Democrats are all kind of up in arms about this, asking, you know, wait a second, why not? Uh, Bishop says it's because we invited the governor to, you know, the governor's office to send someone to present. Stevens is not employed by the governor's office. He is a private citizen. Um, And, you know, unless, you know, in the last month or so, he has gotten a new job within uh, Cooper's office. Uh, He's not allowed to speak on behalf of Cooper. Uh, Democrats said, well, Cooper picked him and asked him to come speak. So why shouldn't his you know, his chosen speaker be allowed to speak. But Bishop said, nope, I'm the chairman. I make the rules, and I'm not going to let him talk. So the there were three Democrats on the committee, uh, Jay Chaudhry from here in uh, Raleigh, also Floyd McKissick from Durham, and Joel Ford from Charlotte. They all stand up in unison, 
and just grab their things, don't say another word, and just walk out of the room. Um, and, you know, that kind of set everybody a titter because, you know, they weren't making – they didn't say, oh, we're walking out, but they just kind of all just got up and silently left, and everyone's, you know, looking around. It, it was in this kind of small cramped room trying to figure out what's happening. Um, so you caught up with them later to ask them what they were – uh, what they were thinking about this. Yes, um, and, you know, they basically said that they felt Bishop was wrong and they felt Stevens, uh, you know, should have had the chance to uh, say his piece. Um, they said that... Uh, I talked to Joel Ford uh, in, at length later, um, and he said basically he thinks that the Republicans have a uh, preconceived notion, were his words, of how they want all of this judicial reform stuff to go, that they're not interested in hearing the other side, um, that it's all just kind of a, a done deal and they're just sort of going through the motions. Um, another uh, complaint uh, that some Democrats and uh, open government advocates had was that this meeting was being held in a room in the legislature where there's no um, audio streaming, which most, I would say, uh, you know, committee rooms and press conference rooms and things like that in the legislature can stream the audio. So people who can't make it in person can listen in. Or if the room gets too full, you know, people can listen. Um, they met in two different rooms uh, on the other day on Wednesday. Uh, neither of those rooms had any audio. Uh, also, I was talking to Joel Ford later. Um, he said that although Dan Bishop had told everyone that there were no rooms available with audio and that he would have loved to stream the meeting if it would have been possible, uh, Ford said basically that was not true, and he knew of multiple rooms that were open and available at the same time that had audio. So, well, so, uh, so what did they miss while they were gone? The agenda um, pretty much just had a, uh, a bunch of presentations on um, how judges are picked in other states and over history, um, but there was a little bit of a surprise toward the end of the meeting, right? Yeah, at the end we got something that was not on the agenda. Um, also, the agenda was only given out the morning of the meeting, so not a lot of time to prepare, but not even on the agenda was the fact that this committee was planning on bringing up new maps for all of this redistricting stuff. So... After the Democrats hear that, having walked out in protest, they all come scrambling back into the room. Uh, I guess they had lobbyists or friends or people who were texting them saying, hey, get back here. Um, they didn't get it back in, you know, until the meeting was already over. And there was, there was no vote taken on these maps or anything like that. Uh, but it was just kind of, uh, uh, you know, to, to see, uh, you know, <laughs> What was uh, what was going on? And our uh, our intrepid courts reporter Anne Blythe uh, took a look at the maps, and uh, she told me earlier that it doesn't look like there's a ton of changes from what we already saw in the House version. Um, should also note that it appears pretty clear that uh, House Republicans were told that these uh, maps were going to come out because uh, Representative Justin Burr was there, and he's obviously the one who's really been championing this whole judicial reform thing. Um, House Speaker Tim Moore also stopped by. Um, but somehow word never made it to the Democrats that uh, these these new maps were going to be brought up. Um, and, you know, some other concerned Democrats were there as well. Uh, there are two Democrats who are former judges, Joe John and Marsha Mori, um, and I saw them both in the audience. They were at this meeting um, and just kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. Um, there's a whole lot up in the air uh, with judicial reform here in North Carolina. None of it's really settled yet. Um, obviously, we're supposed to have new elections for a lot of judges next year. Um, earlier this year, the legislature made every judicial race partisan. Some of them used to be nonpartisan, but now every judge who's running for office is going to have either an R or a D next to his or her name. 
Um, and we also had um, uh, a move to cancel the primary uh, this spring for the judicial elections. And Democrats have since sued over that. Um, they say that that is unconstitutional, that uh, the Republicans who supported that move shouldn't be able to do that because, you know, uh, you can't just cancel elections. Um, the Republicans say, no, it's necessary because we still haven't finished coming up with these new maps that we want to create. Um, this is interesting. Unlike the state legislative maps, which were forced to be redrawn because they were unconstitutional, uh, that wasn't the case with these judicial maps. Uh, the Republicans just kind of uh, decided that they wanted to redraw these ju judicial, ju judicial maps as well. Um, and so that's still going on, obviously. Uh, now we've got these new maps. We'll see how that goes. And then in the meantime, um, there have been rumors floating around that we might even see a constitutional amendment that just ends judicial elections altogether. Um, and that was another thing they talked about at, the, at that meeting on Wednesday, that the Democrats did not get the chance to participate in, you know, weigh in on because they had walked out. Um, the, the Republicans who remained in the committee were asking about you know, how do we possibly move from, you know, electing judges to just selecting them? Do we, does the legislature just get to pick the judges? Does the legislature appoint a committee who picks judges? Does the governor get to weigh in? Um, and there's a lot of different ways that a lot of different states do it. Um, uh, professor Gaylord, who is the, uh, uh, the professor giving the talk there, kind of suggested against the legislature making the appointments. He said, uh, I think it was Virginia and South Carolina do that. And he said they've basically run into problems where it's just the legislators appointing their friends and you don't really get necessarily the best qualified candidates. It's not the most accountable process. But some of the senators who were there pushed back on that and they said, well, who's more accountable than members of the legislature? We get elected every two years. We have to respond to our constituents. So why shouldn't we be able to, uh, you know, get to pick judges? Because, okay. Yeah. So. So some hinting that that may be what they pursue in any kind of judicial appointment process is some kind of a, uh, a mechanism for law lawmakers to play a big role in, in appointing. Yes, they definitely, they definitely want to be able to, uh, you know, have some more control over judicial selection. I, I think they are kind of done with the idea of electing judges. Um, Democrats have said this is cynical because Republicans have lost over a dozen court cases uh, so far, having laws overturned that they've passed since 2011. Um, Republicans say, we just want to take politics out of the judicial system. So uh, I don't know who's right or who's wrong. I, you know, I think it probably just depends on which opinion you like better. Uh, but we could very well see a constitutional amendment to, uh, to go to an appointment system. Uh, obviously, that would have to be approved by the voters who would, you know, be saying, yes, uh, you know, take us out of this. We don't want to roll in picking judges. It's, you know, we're not lawyers. We don't know anything about judges. <laughs> you guys do it. Uh, so we'll see what happens. All right. Okay. Uh, and uh, one last thing before we go to headliner of the week, Andy, uh, the uh, your stories this week were almost all about um, a local government case. Um, so uh, we'll talk about the tie to state government in a second, but tell us a little bit about Laura Riddick and um, what she's charged with. Laura Riddick is an elected official, a Republican, from Raleigh, and she's been there for 20 years. Uh, she was first elected in, in 1996, took office in the Register of Deeds. Now, the Register of Deeds office is, in North Carolina is an elected office, but in many, many other states it's not. It's an appointed 
uh, position in county government. Um, so we're unique in that sense. Um, and so she was there 20 years, campaigned on fiscal conservancy, and uh, was recently indicted for embezzling about $900,000. Um, and there's $2.3 million missing. And so this has grabbed headlines ever since, it, you know, uh, money, we found out money was missing. We found out she was uh, resigning. We found out other people were cooperating with uh, the local district attorney. Um, everyone knew her, it seems, um, you know, in political circles. She's been around for so long. She gave money. She hobnobbed. She, you know, was up at the legislature. Her husband uh, was a longtime uh, reporter at the News Observer. Um, I didn't know him. I don't think any of us here at this table did. He, he left in, I think, a, a, what, 2009, 2010. It was before I got here in 2010. Anyway, um, so... Uh, she was indicted Tuesday and uh, turned herself in Wednesday, is out on bond now. And yesterday, it, now people are starting to distance themselves from her. Yesterday, Dallas Woodhouse, the executive director of the North Carolina Republican Party, <laughs> tweeted, uh, we got $383 from Riddick over the last however many years. I think he said it dated back to 2003. And they're sending it back to the Wake County government <laughs> in the form of a check. Uh, that didn't say that's all she gave over this period according to Dallas yes but uh, $383 I thought that was interesting maybe uh, I asked I tweeted back at him and said well that's an odd number most people donate in multiples of five you know and there might have been a dinner in there somewhere but uh, they're sending it back to the county and the Wake County Republican Party got some money from her too we're looking into how much uh, she got, and they may make a decision um, for themselves next month when their board um, members meet. Uh, but it's interesting. People are now distancing themselves from her. Uh, she, I think she gave, uh, it will be interesting. To see. She, her final salary was $140,000 a year. Uh, and I think she did do end up donating, uh, spoiler alert, a lot to Republicans over the years. Uh, that story will be coming out later today. Um, so it, this is sort of the scandal that people can't take their eyes off of. At least, you know, the biggest one, I, I, I don't know, I can't think of one involving an elected official. Well, it's just um, shocking to me, you know, personally, how, one, how long this is alleged to have gone on and how easy it appears to have been to just kind of walk out of this office with cash. Every day. She's one of four people who uh, have been indicted on embezzlement charges. Well, she has uh, the largest. She's accused of taking the largest amount, but uh, others took tens of thousands, according to uh, prosecutors. And um, we don't know yet the details of whether they were all in cahoots and uh, allegedly taking it together or whether this is uh, – prosecutors believe this is – uh, something uh, each one of them was doing independently, but there was a lot of cash walking out the door. Well, that's what I, that's what I was about to say. Is every day they they get cash and uh, they they do a lot of their transactions in cash. When I got married last year, we had to pay for our marriage certificate in sixty dollars in cash. And so, uh, at the end of every day, it seems from our, our reporting and from audits that these different tellers would have cash left in the registers. They would each take it and put it in a bun bundle it up and then give it in a lump sum to Riddick or uh, an aide of hers. And there was no accountability um, 
for a long time, there was no way to know like whose drawer was missing money, you know, whose didn't add up to the number of transactions they made. And so it, it seems like people could just, you know, stuff a 20 in their pocket, you know, when no one was looking and uh, the books didn't, wouldn't point back to who it was that did it. Um, so it, it's interesting. Pe- people are baffled. Um, and it, I already got one call this morning uh, from a reader who doesn't like that we keep pointing out that she's Republican. He thinks that uh, she's a secret Democrat who um, donated uh, money to the Republican Party to make them look bad this whole time. It's uh, so quite the long con. Uh, it is. It, it, I don't know if I'm that committed to something uh, as as a millennial. You know, I don't think I could do that. But you know, maybe she was that dedicated. You never know. She does the the caller think that she's uh, uh, done these crimes, or is he falsely accused of oh, them? Oh, he or? thinks she did them. Okay. Yes, he just thinks she's a she's a Democrat. Okay. So okay. she she signed up for all of these uh, felony charges in exchange for. Uh, Temporarily, you know, running the party's name through the mud. I can't say. I, 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 I don't know how to answer that question. But in some people's minds, perhaps. Okay. Perhaps that is the case. All right. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and come back with Brian Murphy from the DC Bureau. Uh, stay with us. Did you know that North Carolina judges used to ride on horseback across the state to deliver justice? Today, there are more than 1,000 judicial representatives in our state. And through the NCAOC Speakers Bureau, you can request to have a representative speak at your event. Representatives are ready to inform your community about the importance of the North Carolina judicial system, and their visits are completely free. We can't promise they'll show up on a horse, though. Visit celebrate.ncourts.org to request a speaker for your event. Welcome back to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader, and now with me is Brian Murphy, our Washington, D.C. correspondent in the McClatchy, D.C. Bureau. Um, Brian, you've been following uh, the uh, nomination by Trump of Michael Dorson, uh, who was nominated for a post in the EPA, uh, and uh, who Burr and Tillis, somewhat surprisingly, came out against uh, a little while back. Uh, so what happened this week to Michael Dorson? This week, uh, Dorson uh, withdrew his nomination um, to be, uh, he, he withdrew his nomination to be the uh, chemical safeties expert at the at the EPA. Um, you're right, Burr and Tillis, uh, Burr and Tillis came out uh, last month against Dorson and um, there were other signals from other Republicans, including Susan Collins, that made it seem like he was not going to get confirmed by the Republican-led Senate. Um, it was pretty interesting. Obviously, there are local issues, uh, the Camp Lejeune issue with toxins in the water there over the last 30 or so years. Uh, that's led to a lot of illnesses and cancers in that area and, and the ongoing Gen X problem in Wilmington and the Cape Fear River, um, I think, led Burr and Tillis to consider this nomination a little more closely than they than you know they would have otherwise. Uh, obviously, there's some local issues there. And I talked to Tillis, and he just said, you know, the answers that they got from this guy, Dowerson, who had worked um, at the EPA a long time ago, and then has worked as a, sort of a toxicologist 
for these companies claiming that none of these chemicals that are being put in the water are doing any damage. Um, he sort of was a, a, an industry for hire guy. Um, and there was a lot of opposition from environmental groups. But it's interesting to see Burr and Tillis go against a Trump nominee. Uh, Tillis told me this was the first one that he has not uh, supported. And obviously, when, when you lose two Republican senators like Tillis and Burr, um, you're probably not going to get through the, the Senate, given how tight it is these days. And it sounded like Burr and Tillis were being lobbied by someone whose daughter actually died of cancer in relation to Camp Lejeune pollution. Jerry, yeah, Jerry Emsinger, um, he's gotten a lot of press. He's, he's, he's really made this his life's work in a lot of ways, uh, fighting against some of these toxins in the water after his daughter Janie died um, decades ago now, um, given uh, she's she passed away after, uh, you know, contracting um, childhood leukemia, I believe, um, due to the, you know, what he says is the water, the toxins in the water at Camp Lejeune. Um, there's been some movies made, some documentaries made about the situation there. And so, yeah, they, they you know, the environmentalists really uh, rallied to try to defeat this nominee, not unlike Scott Pruitt, um, you know, who's the director of the, of the EPA now. But I think in this case, there were some specific issues with him working so closely with the industry. And then you have specific issues not only happening in uh, North Carolina with Camp Lejeune and, and Gen X, uh, there have been some other military bases around the country that have had problems with toxins in the water. Um, there have been some other problems, uh, you know, the Flint, Michigan example, which is, certainly isn't toxins in the water, but, but lead in the water. Um, I think this is an issue that it's, it's easy to raise the consciousness of a, of a senator or somebody has to vote on this by talking about you know, illnesses caused by, by toxins in water. We were talking earlier on the podcast about how many Democrats had been filing to run for legislative seats here, and it seems like that will only ramp up after the election of Doug Jones in uh, reddest of the red Alabama. Uh, so what's been the reaction on Capitol Hill to Jones beating Roy Moore? It's been a very interesting reaction, and, and uh, this may tell you everything you need to know about the different parties. Um, the Republicans are almost in some ways treating it as a win. Uh, the, the fact that they would have had to answer questions and, and every 2018 Senate candidate and House candidate and, and you know probably all the way down to dog catcher would have had to would have had to answer for the fact that Roy Moore is seated in the Senate. Um, you know, so Republicans in some ways are breathing a sigh of relief. Uh, it's only a two-year seat. Uh, this will be back up on the ballot in 2020, the Alabama Senate seat. This is to fill out the term of Jeff Sessions. Um, so in some ways, I think Republicans seem relieved. Uh, many senators on the Hill have said, you know, they haven't exact. They haven't come out and said, "I'm glad Doug Jones won," but they have kind of said, "I'm not sad that uh, Roy Moore lost." So. Um, you know, certainly it makes Republicans, uh, you know, have even a slimmer margin in the Senate now. It'll be 51-49. Um, but I think the fact that they will not have to answer a question about Roy Moore, um, you know, why you supported a, a, someone who was alleged of, um, you know, uh, dating, at least at the, at the very least, dating underage women uh, or underage girls. And then, you know, Roy Moore has, has said all kinds of other inflammatory things. And so the thought of him coming to the Senate and and ha- and making Republicans answer for everything he says, I think is was a scary thought for for some Republicans, and they're not all that upset that uh, he's not there. 
it seems like members of Congress have been dropping like flies uh, over sexual harassment allegations. You wrote recently about how Democrats, more than Republicans, had been distancing themselves for their, from their accused members of Congress. Uh, but uh, lately, we've seen this from Republicans, too. Yeah, it's, it's happening fast. I mean, uh, the, you know, what started, I, I think a lot of people have, have traced it to sort of the Harvey Weinstein factor. Um, but it, it has been a huge cultural shift in just a short amount of time. Um, certainly, it was Democratic colleagues that forced Al Franken out. There's no reason um, he couldn't have hung on until an ethics committee investigation was completed. Uh, but he, you know, the, the tide turned on him because his colleagues turned on him. Uh, Blake Farenthold, a Texas Republican in the House, is stepping aside, or he says he will not run for re-election after there were allegations against him. Uh, Trent Franks, Joe Barton, I mean, the, the names, um, they, they come real easy now because there are so many uh, people have stepped down, and, and there's rumors all over Capitol Hill that, that this is just the beginning, that um, if if the public is, is able to get to the bottom of, um, and the press really, is able to get to the bottom of you know, all those sexual harassment settlements that have been made, then, then maybe even more people are going to have to resign. So I don't think we've heard the end of this uh, in politics. I guess, you know, I've already seen the stories uh, indicating a backlash to the Me Too moment. At at what point do we, um, does it just all, you know, we, we do we get desensitized to all of these claims that are coming out? But just this morning, a, a Democratic woman who's running in Kansas was forced to drop out of the race after it was, came out that, that her company had settled a sexual harassment lawsuit against her. So so I think there's all kinds of uh, varieties of the story, and it's going to drag on well into 2018. Well, meanwhile, uh, the debate over tax refer- reform goes on, and uh, it sounds like Republicans in the Senate are not going to wait for their new colleague, Doug Jones, to arrive and uh, replace the incumbent appointed senator from Alabama. Uh, they're going to go ahead with it, and uh, they may have a uh, a deal shaping up. What's the latest? I, it sounds as if they've struck one and, and may have enhanced the child care tax credit to uh, entice Senator Rubio from Florida from for, for, uh, to vote on it. Um, it sounds like the House, uh, you know, the Senate may vote as early as Monday. The House may vote as early as Tuesday. They really want to get this accomplished. Uh, Republicans do, and it's. I think there's interesting parallels to to what happened in 2009, 2010. You know, after the Obama election and and the wave that came um, from from Republicans uh, in the midterms, uh, even down to the fact that Scott Brown was able to win a seat in in you know deep blue Massachusetts, the way Doug Jones was able to win a seat in ruby red Alabama. There's a lot of parallels uh, between what happened. Um, to, to Democrats in, in the 2010 midterms and what may happen to Republicans in 2018. So I think they're very keen on, on the fact that they need to pass this. Um, they need to pass this tax reform bill, which also includes getting rid of the individual mandate uh, for Obamacare. Um, they can, can almost uh, kill two birds with one stone there and, and go back to their voters and say that they have accomplished things. Now it's time for Headliner of the Week, where we pick the most important person in this week's news. Will Doran, who's your Headliner of the Week? Well, I think I've got to go with Judge Don Stevens. Uh, people are, you know, still arguing online today, two days later, about this whole, uh, you know, refusal to let him speak at this judicial meeting. And 
Um, it really strikes me as a really good example of the Streisand effect, uh, which is, you know, when you, uh, you know, someone tries to... Uh, I'm eager to hear what this is. Yeah. Oh, well, Google it uh, if you're not familiar. But it's basically, you know, you try to deflect attention from something and have the ironic and unintended consequence of bringing a lot more attention than it would have gotten if it had just allowed to happen. You know, if, if Stevens had what, spoken why, at this what is, committee what, meeting, Why is it the Streisand effect? Uh, there's something like Barbara Streisand uh, tried to, like, stop some magazine oh, from okay. writing about something, and okay. then it this like, rings a bell, blew though. up nationally. Um, I don't remember all the details, but it's a phrase. Um, <laughs> anyways, um, Stevens, uh, he, he shared his notes uh, with me that he was going to have given at this committee meeting, and... You know, there, there were some kind of incendiary things in there about how the legislature doesn't need to be messing with the ju- judicial branch, but... Things you know, he said before, though, pretty Yeah, much. things he said before didn't make a huge splash, and, you know, if the meeting had just gone on as scheduled, it would have just been like, well, Republican says this, Democrat says this, they're talking about, you know, judicial lines, which is, you know, kind of not the most exciting topic in the world for a lot of people. You know, instead, you know, it's this whole huge thing with, like, Democrats doing a protest and, you know, the governor's office is arguing with Phil Berger's office and, you know, everyone is just making a whole huge stink out of it. And it just, it blew up way bigger than I ever would have imagined a little Senate Judicial Committee meeting would do. Um, So uh, for Don Stevens and uh, I guess the uh, the Streisand effect on, uh, on display there, uh, he's my headliner. Okay. Uh, trying to think of a good Streisand song to reference, but um, drawing a blank. So can't help um, you out there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, the wrong podcast for that, I guess. Um, so Judge Don Stevens in the hat for headliner of the week. Andy Spay, who's your headliner? I'm going to go with Steve Bannon, uh, the man who everyone pointed fingers at after the Roy Moore loss. If you're a Democrat, you said, thank you, Steve Bannon. Uh, And if you're a Republican, you said, damn you, Steve Bannon. Uh, Or maybe also thank you, Steve Bannon. (laughs) Or maybe so. Yes, you never know. A lot of Republicans Uh, figure they dodged a bullet here. So uh, I I say that for two reasons. Uh, I I nominate uh, Mr. Bannon. One, because he was in the news so much this week. Uh, for uh, Moore's loss in Alabama, which was uh, surprising despite, you know, uh, everything. Uh, it's, it's, Moore was uh, reviled by many people, but a lot of people expected him to still win because Alabama's conservative, and, uh, and yet he didn't. And so uh, what's next for Steve Bannon? Uh, well, uh, it... Let's pivot to North Carolina. Uh, <laughs> he is reportedly going to help uh, Reverend Mark Harris, who I think is somewhere in near Charlotte, uh, take on Congressman Robert Pittenger, who, again, uh, they're out towards Charlotte in the western part of the state, so some of our listeners may not be familiar with Congressman uh, And it Pitt- stretches down to uh, Pittenger. Down, down to near Fayetteville and, and the base. But um, so. one might wonder why... Would uh, and so Pittenger uh, late recently put out a new campaign ad where he he talks about putting the Christ back in Christmas and how we all need to, how we all need to do that and be uh, not be so concerned about being politically correct um, and it's very odd and you might think why is Pittenger coming out so strong with the 
you know, the social and religious rhetoric, one, it's because they expect that to be ramped up if he's challenged by Mr. Harris, uh, Pastor Harris. Uh, Pittenger, if, if you're wondering why uh, Steve Bannon is going after him, you're right to wonder. Uh, Pittenger votes with Trump's interest 96% of the time, so uh, it, it seems curious. But Laura Leslie of RAL, um, WRAL, uh, the TV station over here off Western Boulevard, points out in a story she wrote this week that Pittenger is a long, longtime friend of uh, former George Bush advisor Carl Rove, who uh, is uh, a frequent target of Mr. Bannon. Mr. Rove, Mr. Bannon uh, apparently do not like each other. And so that alone may be the reason that uh, Bannon teams up with Harris to try to take down someone who votes with Trump 96% of the time. Uh, so we'll see. Maybe uh, Bannon will bring his brand of um, conservatism to the Tar Heel State next year. Well, that would be interesting if uh, if Mark Harris were to win that primary because that's one of the districts here in North Carolina that the National Democrats have been throwing a lot of money into and have kind of identified as a, a possible target to flip. I mean, obviously it's a it's a solidly Republican district, but uh, one of the least solidly so, I guess, in North Carolina. I think Pinscher probably still won by 10 or 15 percentage points uh, in the last election, uh, but... Uh, something the Democrats have their eye on too, so it'd be interesting if uh, if this yet again uh, backfires. <laughs> if, uh, <laughs> if it's something that Bannon's involved in. And uh, Harris, the pastor, challenged Pitcher last time too, and only lost by maybe a hundred votes. A hundred and thirty-four right. votes. Yeah. I just saw it in Laura's yeah. story. Yeah. That which is, woo, close. Yeah. So that could be um, the biggest primary uh, this year, uh, next year in twenty eighteen. All right, uh, so we have Judge Don Stevens, retired judge uh, in Wake County, in the hat for headliner of the week, and we have uh, Steve Bannon, uh, the um, mastermind behind the uh, Roy Moore uh, candidacy. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Don Stevens uh, for uh, Will's reference to the Streisand effect. Uh, he, look I, it like up. It. I like it. <laughs> Stevens is such an unlikely uh, person to be so controversial. He's, uh, it, it, from he's, afar. He's from presided afar. over a lot of criminal trials, so um, we, uh, we, see, we see him a lot in the news, but uh, only lately for, for, I think, for this kind of uh, um, political uh, speeches and uh, um, debates that he's getting into. He had some good uh, digs at uh, Durham County, I remember, in the 2016 elections, if everyone remembers, when Durham had all of those issues with, uh, you know, precincts screwing up and ballots coming in late. He was the judge that presided over those, like, last-minute hearings, and he had some good uh, digs at, you know, uh, you know, just typical, <laughs> typical screw-ups coming out of there. So he is definitely not one to, uh, to hold his opinions, uh, even, even when he was on the bench. So... All right, so Judge Stevens is our headliner of the week. Will wins this one. We'll add it to uh, our official tally. Uh, how many are you up to? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not keeping count. We oh, can ask okay, Brian. We'll ask I'm, Brian I'm sure Brian's keeping me. Okay. Out. All right, uh, that's it for Domecast. Uh, for um, Brian Murphy, Will Doran, and Andy Spay, I'm Jordan Schrader. Catch us again next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. 
The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 